hard that I did not forget something. Did I forget something? All right. Oh, and I just steal the bench so I have somewhere to put my tea. I have thought about making a little just coffee cup stand that will just hold my coffee cup and nothing else because this seems excessive. Uh, but that would be ridiculous. It's called a podium. Get out of here. I, uh, I've been preaching for in one setting or another for almost 25 years, and I do not like lecterns or podiums. Uh, I music stand is my one thing, and I will not be going back to a podium even to hold my coffee. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Jess, I'm not going to get this thing to work. A pedestal, I, I would end up climbing up on it, so I can't use a pedestal. Uh, let's pray in preparation for the, the message this morning. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd be with me. Uh, help me to get out of the way. Um, just help me to get out of the way. I hope the, the message this morning just to, be, uh, just to be you speaking to the hearts of the folks who are here. Um, help me to lean on the text, to lead on, on the word, on the, on the poetry of David this morning. Um, on the, the inspiration of Jesus that, that uh, echoed backward through time to his words. And I, I pray for your, your grace that just, you know, that I would present that well. Um, and I pray for the folks who are here, that as they listen, they, uh, they hear from you. Uh, not from me, that, that folks that hear my cleverness or my, my uh, humor or whatever, Lord. I, I, I pray that they'd hear you and that they'd know you and that... that you would uh, find the spots in their hearts and in their lives where they need you and, and, and just plant the seeds of the gospel there. Just be, um, be close to us. As we, as we hear the message this morning, help us to know Jesus more. In his name I pray. Amen. Um, I was in... Did I need to... I don't even need to send anyone out, right? I'm not on my game. I, last week we had technical difficulties and we were running around trying to get everything nailed down. And this week I'm waiting to find out I did something wrong. Uh, last time I think I just did stuff wrong for a really long time. And this week I'm just confused. Um, so uh, my daughter and I uh, will go out. Uh, she goes grocery shopping with me every week. It is one of the like coolest things to, to take one of my kids with me grocery shopping because I just spend the day with them. Um, and this last week we were in uh, Great Falls. We stopped at the tea shop. It's right on Central. Uh, um, it's uh, in Cahoots for Tea. I think one of the, either the Andersons or the uh, Victoria told us about this place years ago and we started going. And, and I, I was stopping in there to get something and the lady who runs a place, um, I believe her name is Kathy and I got to make sure because if I said it wrong, I don't want to find out like, oh, yeah, what a jerk. You got my name wrong. I, yes, it is Kathy. See, I got it right. Um, Kathy, we were talking to her and she had paintings everywhere, like all over the shop that weren't there before. And we got to talking to her and a local artist had just run out of studio space and given her all of these paintings to either hang up or sell or whatever. And some of them she was donating to an animal shelter to auction off. And some of them were going to stay. And I, I got to talking to her. She, she kind of grabbed me as I was on my way out the door. And she showed me one painting in particular. Um, and and I, we talked about it at length. And she tried to see if I could figure out what it is. And, and the more I thought about it, uh, the better it clicked. And so, hey, Jess, can you bump my slide for me? I can't. It's broken. I can't fix it. So this is... This is the painting. It's actually a piece of the painting. Can anybody tell me what this is other than the people who already knew? Oh, 
You want to bump me to the next one? This is the larger picture, and that's Markel, who was awesome enough to help me. Uh, do you see it? I remember looking at it in the store, and I thought, that looks like a lot of dark with some flex. Like, I don't get it at all. I don't get it at all. I don't get it at all. And, like, the first picture I showed you was close up. And from close up, actually, other than Lita, who's a genius, nobody, like, saw, I mean, did any of you guys see anything in it? I mean, like, not really. It just kind of looked like specs. Uh, you want to bump me ahead one more time? This is the picture she had next to it. She gave me this one as well. Uh, do you see it now? Shh, Titus. Do you see it? It's a koi pond. It is a muddy koi pond. If you look at the top, you can see the first fish right there, and there's a second one across the bottom, and then there's one on the side. If only I had a laser. I just lost it again. It doesn't matter. Stop that. Pick it on me, woman. Um, it is a koi pond. But I honestly, I could not tell what it was when I looked at it. And um, when she pointed out the other fish, I still couldn't tell because I'm not very smart. And, like, I don't really get art, I guess. And um, the more I looked at it, eventually she said, well, it's a muddy koi pond. And she started pointing things out. And once I saw it, the pattern just kind of jumped out at me. And then, like, after that, I couldn't stop seeing it. I couldn't stop seeing the fish in the pond. It just looked like kind of blotches to me up until that point. Um, we're going to be diving this morning into the second half of Psalm 51. I'm going to try and not go for quite as long this time because it's only half the psalm, which last week I guess it was the other half. Uh, so we'll try not to do that again. But like, as we get into this, what I want to get, what I want to present here, what I want to talk about is this idea that when you get up close to something, um, actually I had a, a, a philosopher speak to me once who told me that um, if you're standing in the brush and you're hacking your way through, all you see is what's in front of you. If you get in an airplane and fly over it, suddenly you realize the brush isn't all that big and that there's an awful lot more. Um, the same is the case with my painting. Um, as we go through Psalm 51, um, Psalm 51 represents a very tight, the first half represented a very tight perspective, and the second half is the backup, where you begin to see the image in its wholeness, where you begin to see the patterns emerge and the picture is there, where you begin to realize that the, the crummy day that you spend hacking through the brush is just a tiny piece of the entire like masterpiece that is the countryside. Everybody with me? So um, diving into, psalm, uh, into the psalm, a little background here. I, for those of you all who missed last week, we did the first six-ish verses. Actually, we went a little further than that, but I'm going to cover some of the ones that we did last week again. Um, what's going on here is uh, David is writing a song. King David is the second king of Israel. This is right after he, um, well, he saw his neighbor bathing on the roof, which was not an unusual thing at the time. Like, um, Israel's a desert, and it's hot, and it's dry, which is why everybody fights over it and everybody wants to own it. Um, but they would go up on the roof of their house in the evening because it was cool. And you would often do things like bathe or what have you on the roof because it wasn't an oven. I know Big Sandy, nobody understands what it's like to be, you know, have to vary where you're at during the day or in the evening or what have you based on the, the temperature. Um, but he sees her out there bathing and he's like, hey, check that out, which is creepy on its own. Finds out who she is, learns that she's married, and she's married to a soldier 
who was fighting in the army where David is supposed to be commanding, but he didn't go with him. He stayed home. Um, and knowing that this is this married woman, he invites her over and um, enjoys her company and gets her pregnant. Uh, and then she invites, then he invites her husband home, brings Uriah back, Uriah the Hittite, who is Bathsheba's husband, and tries to get Uriah to like be with his wife so that like, there's a lot of Jewish background. We talked about it in the deep dive last week. If you want to see that, you can jump on the Facebook page and watch it. Um, it's possible he was trying to get him to accept his wife as his wife. Um, it's also possible he was trying to cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. There are a bunch of possibilities. It's an interesting topic, but not for this morning. Um, but he wouldn't do it. Like, for whatever reason, he would not go and be with his wife. And so David said, well, you give me no choice. And he has Uriah killed. Like, he sends him back to the army. They put him where the fighting is hottest. And at the moment of, like, the intense battle, everybody retreats and they leave Uriah behind. And Uriah is killed. And then David is able to marry his neighbor's wife. um, And all is well. David gets away with it. Um, That section of the story is actually a hinge point in the book of uh, 2 Samuel because it ends with this line, but God was not pleased which I think is one of the most terrifying lines in the Bible. Uh, jump forward nine months, and Nathan shows up, and Nathan basically calls out David to his face. And David is horrified at the fact that he has done something wicked. He is horrified that he's been caught, that is out there, that people have confronted him. And his son that he has with Bathsheba um, is born shortly thereafter, and the son dies. Um, very quickly, like, like before the eighth day, and there's a lot to that. Um, but David is kind of crushed, and David fasts and, and weeps before God. And what we find is that if you go forward from there, David is a changed man. He's no longer the David he was before. And in some ways, probably he was changed good, but in a lot of ways he was changed bad. He was changed where he wouldn't take authority in his family. He wouldn't you know, wouldn't discipline his children for wrong action. Um, And eventually he recreates himself and his kids, which is really sad. Um, But between David and God, we see um, David being reconciled. And Psalm 51 is this song he wrote um, about that reconciliation. The first half is him talking about sin being ever before him and how, like, everything about him is sinful and wicked. And, like, in my in sin did my mother conceive me. Like, from birth I was sinful. And, and all of this stuff. He's talking about how horrible he is because he's done something pretty bad, right? Like, if you murder the neighbor to cover up having gotten his wife pregnant, can we all agree? Not cool. Um, okay. Oh. Is everybody already asleep? Is that, or am I just that not funny? Uh, so we're going to pick up in, uh, and we did cover this, but we're going to cover it again because I think there's value to it. Uh, we're going to pick up in uh, 7 to 9 in chapter 5, or 51 of Psalms. Uh, if you open right to the middle of the Bible, hold it up, open right to the middle, you'll find Psalm, or my bookmark, um, and uh, that's where we're picking up. I, I uh, Again, so you all know, I stopped putting the words on the screen so that people will open it up and read it. If you want me to go back, I've had nobody say go back, so I've stayed this way. If you want me to go back, let me know. 
But picking up in chapter 51, 7 to 9. So he talks about all of this awful stuff about himself, all of this sin, all of this brokenness. And here we see where he shifts direction. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear and let me, excuse me, let me hear joy and gladness. Let my bones, let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Now, this is the transition point. So he goes from, I am terrible, I'm full of sin, I've, I've rebelled, I've done this horrible thing. And most of us, I, I'm assuming most of us have had things. Maybe not, you know, getting the neighbor pregnant. Maybe not killing the neighbor. Um, maybe not those things. But most of us have things that keep us up at night, right? Things that are ever before us. Things that remind us, like, oh, wow. I, I blow it. I blow it a lot. Or, oh, wow, like, if people knew what was about three inches under the surface, I don't know how I'd live. Um, and that is where David is at the first half. But then he starts talking about forgiveness. He starts talking about being made clean. He talks about hyssop, which is uh, an herb that's a disinfectant, actually. John pointed out to me this week. Um, it is a disinfectant, like they would use it as a medicinal thing, but it was used in temple ceremonies to throw blood or water on things that you were purifying. Because when you would sin, something had to be punished. Like otherwise, you know, if you have rules and everybody breaks the rules and, you know, like hypothetically, if the town had a rule about dogs and nobody kept their dog in their yard and they were all running around all over and they didn't enforce that rule, is it really a rule? Um, the enforcement of the rule is is a part of what justice is. Like otherwise, the rules don't make a, any difference. They don't they don't have purpose. And one of the scriptural ideas that we see run all the way through to the time of Christ is, um, and then Christ is the fulfillment of it. Is they would sacrifice animals, and the animal they would pass their sin on to the animal, and the animal would take punishment for the sins, and then they would be cleansed by the blood of the animal, which is all really about Jesus, because the whole Old Testament is foreshadowing Jesus. Um, but this hyssop thing, he's talking about ceremonies that were used for, like, Passover, where the angel of death passed over Egypt and, and it, you know, spared the Jews who had blood painted with hyssop on their doors. Or when you would touch a dead body and need to be ritually clean, they would clean you with hyssop. Or lepers, when lepers were healed, they would have to be cleaned with hyssop. Um, like, so these things are significant. So what he's asking for is, God, clean me. Take away this sin. Take it off of me. Make me clean. Make me pure. Make me holy like white as snow. And honestly, I think I, I've known a lot of people in my life who, you know, are desperate for the past to just be gone. Or they try to ignore it, right? Ignoring the past is easy until it isn't. And then people drink or they, they run away or they do whatever it is they do to try and escape it. And what David is saying is, I can't run from this. I tried, but you put it back in front of me. Make me clean. Now, this is kind of where we left last week. Um, we talked about this broken bones and gladness thing, joy from broken bones. And the idea here is not misery, but misery with the knowledge that I'm being fixed. Um, that it is leading to something. And what we're going to look at in the second half of this psalm is this idea that everything we experience, the sin we commit, the losses we experience, and, and everybody experiences loss, right? Like we have deaths. We have, we have um, people that are estranged from us. We have brokenness in the world around us. We, we you know, or just the, the run-of-the-mill, like, 
like just sorrow or, or weight we carry on, all of these things serve the purpose of altering us if we allow God to work through them. It is this big idea. People say, oh, everything happens for a reason. It's actually like a misquote of the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, for we know that God works through all things for the good of those who love him and honor his name. Meaning, bad things happen, but if you walk with Christ, if you like walk with God, he will take those bad things and he will turn them into something amazing. He will use them for his glory. Because we serve a God who chooses to be glorified by showing mercy. Like, how opposite is that of our culture? Like, we look at who is glorified. It's the guy who, like, comes with the best insult, right? Like, or the best comeback. Or, or our action heroes get revenge and kill the bad guy. God is glorified by forgiving. And not just forgiving in a cheap way, but by forgiving through offering his son in our place. Like he gets punished, we get forgiven, and it is amazing. It is beautiful. It is undeserved. And bones that are broken that are rejoice are bones that are broken, but know that God is fixing it. And that God is fixing it through the mercy that he offers us. Through, like, he has made us better and more. I, uh... I found a quote from, and I hate using this book, but I love it, uh, Kierkegaard. This is from Soren Kierkegaard. He says, um, it is not the path which is the difficulty, rather the difficulty which is the path. And the idea is we look at pain, we look at regret, we look at sin, we look at um, ways that people have wronged us. We look at all of this stuff and that pain, it is the path to holiness. Like It is the path to overcoming. It's just miserable getting there. So we're going to jump to the next slide here. Hopefully we're on the same one. I already did that one. Oh, we're on here. All right. Um, so we're picking up in 13 to 17. Oh, wait a minute. I should probably read 10 to 12 as well. Uh, Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Everybody who is like longtime church, and I think I know this because when I first started going to church, I was a Lutheran. Like we went to this Lutheran church, and like we sang this like every Sunday, and I can hear the organ, and I can still kind of remember everybody else singing it. Um, I try to block out my own singing it. Um, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, God, this is what I want. I know that I've screwed up. I want you to make me new. I want you to take me and I want you to to renovate me inside out, take away my sins, make my heart and my spirit brand new. And this is interesting because, like, we see this in in David. Uh, David is called a man after God's own heart, which is something because a man after God's own heart, like, did some pretty crappy stuff, Right. And actually, uh, you know, like David wanted to build a temple for God, and God's like, yeah, you got a lot of blood on your hands, dude. Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody else is going to do it. Um, but David is a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? Does it mean he's perfect? No, because a man, any of us who are men or people or humans, um, women or whatever, we are imperfect, and we cannot be perfect. A man after God's own heart is not a man who is perfect, but a rather it is a man who is passionate in the same way God is and loves God as passionately as he loves us. And we see that in David. And so when David asked to be renewed, asked to be made new, he is asking to be made new because he wants to be reunited with God. He wants to be brought back. 
Um, I somehow skipped those verses in my slides. I don't know how I did that. Actually, I do know. I edited them, and I messed them up. Um, and so when he asks for these things, he's asking, God, just bring me back. Make me new. Um, this is where this gets tricky. See, now, David, David looked at his sin with regret, and he looked at his sin with sorrow, and he looked at his sin as this thing that he would hold against himself. And what he was doing was he was right here. As David gets older and his sons get older, he has a son named um, uh, Amnon. And Amnon is kind of pervy. Like, I don't know how to say that another way. And he falls in love with his half-sister, Tamar. And he lives pretty wild, and eventually he comes up with a plan to take advantage of his sister. Or, actually, to get with her, but, like, eventually he takes advantage of her. And, like, David looks at it, and he's like, like, this happens, and Tamar is humiliated. And David looks at it, and he's like, oh, my son screwed up. But I screwed up, too, so I can't do anything. And he doesn't do anything. So another one of his sons comes along and murders the other son. And he's like, oh, that's awful, but I've already lost a son. And I screwed up too, so I can't do anything. He lets it continue because he's looking at his guilt right here, this tiny little frame. But in reality, David could come back to Amnon and say, Amnon, dude, like, God doesn't desire you to be this man. God doesn't desire you to be this, like, like, like abuser of women, to be this like wild living guy, like, like you're not an animal. God designed you for greater. Come to me, come with me, and we'll talk about this hyssop thing. We'll talk about God's grace and his forgiveness. And ultimately, David, like he doesn't do that because he's like, this part of the picture. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And he loses several sons in the process of focusing on this bit and never getting past it. We compare that maybe to Peter. Um, Peter is a man who screws up a lot. And I love that about Peter because he screws up a lot, but he runs back to Jesus. And actually, the, the Gospels themselves are full of these guys who see the close-up picture and they realize, oh, I blew it. And they come running home. The story of the prodigal son is the story of a son who said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my part of the inheritance now? And then he goes and wastes it. And he comes back, and the star of the story is not the prodigal son. Did you know prodigal means wasteful or wild spending? It's actually the proper name of the story is the lost son and the prodigal father. Because the father sees his son, loves him so much that when he comes back, he runs out and greets him and gives him a cloak and puts a ring, a ring on his finger, like a signet ring, which is a restoration of authority. He puts him back where he was and throws a party. My son who was dead is alive again. Um, the story of David is this, but it's less so because David never gets to the big picture. The story of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a race trader. Matthew was the guy that if Matthew gave money to a poor person, a beggar, the beggar was required by Jewish law to give it back because it was blood money. <laughs> Like, Matthew is horrible, but he is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He is a hero of the faith. Why? Because this part of the picture is not the whole picture. My sin, my struggle, my failure, the hurt I've experienced, the loneliness, all of the brokenness, it's not the whole thing. In Christ, 
I am made more. And he takes that little bit and he alters me. Pain is the path then. He changes me. It's like, like the, the crucible. Not the Arthur Miller play that everybody was forced to read in high school. But the actual crucible is like a heating thing where you would put metal in it and it burns away the dross, the excess. And the crucible is that. Sometimes the crucible is the time before we encounter God for the first time. Sometimes it's the days that we feel far away from Him or where we struggle. You know what? Like There's nowhere, anywhere, anywhere in the Scriptures where we're promised an easy, perfect life. In reality, as long as we live in this world, it will be difficult. And if we walk with him, he will take those difficulties and use them for greatness. I, I talk a lot about um, my own failures in life, like, like my alcoholism and everything else. The reason I talk about that stuff is because, um, because God saved me. Like if you listen to the whole story, God saved me. I told this story to my daughter for the first time the other day. And she's like, oh my gosh, God saved you. And it's the truth. But here's the truth that goes with it is, if I live in the I screwed up space, if I don't say, God, make me new, create a new heart in me, create a new person, from the inside out, renovate me, or if I pretended and put a layer of spackle on top of the old crummy Eric, right? I would still be here. Without walking with him, we never see the big picture. And actually, as it talks about those things, I have another picture here. I have the other koi. The cool thing is that God not only redeems us, but he gives us an image to follow. We're going to get to this a little more in depth in a bit. But he says, give me a right spirit. Sustain me in this way. Show me the right path. A little earlier in the psalm, he talks about, teach me this, teach me that. And the reason he says those things is because... God demonstrates and teaches us, and we have a model. I did not see the larger pond until I was told. I think Abby spotted it as soon as she saw the koi, and she's like, oh, I see it. Because in Christ, we have an image of the perfect God, and we can know him. He had eyes of flesh, and he can know us because he suffered too, because his life is crummy sometimes too. And in that, we have an image that becomes the reference for the whole picture. I think I scraped off some of the paint accidentally driving home with it. That is really awful. You should never trust me with anything important. We're going to jump to 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to do this very quickly. If you would like to learn more about this, there's a book. I believe it's by Timothy Keller. It is The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's about 20 pages long, or 50 pages long. super short. You read it in a couple of hours. The audio book is like an hour and 10 minutes long, okay? Um, and it is about, like, humility, Um, but it's the humility. It's actually just an explanation of this chapter, this text right here. So what's going on in 1 Corinthians? Paul planted this church, and he has had like a rocky relationship with them. And he has a rocky relationship forever. And he's addressing the fact that there's a group of people in this church, and some of them are like, yeah, well, I belong to Peter. And then other guys are like, well, I follow Apollos. I'm in this group. We're the cool clique. And then others are like, well... I belong to Paul. Paul is my guy. And they start arguing back and forth about who's better, right? Because churches have never changed, (laughs) right? If we're not finding cliques, we're finding denominations and elevating ourselves, right? Um, I really want to tell a Baptist joke, but I'm not going to. Love you, honey. 
And so Paul is addressing the fact that they're arguing about who belongs to who. Let's not argue about who belongs to who. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. By the way, Cephas is Peter. It's just a different version of the name. I, I don't want to explain it right now. Or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and your Christ. And Christ is God's. So what he's saying is saying, listen, it doesn't matter which group you belong to. It doesn't matter which one you want to stand near. It doesn't matter any of that stuff because everything in this world belongs to God. And if you are one of his adopted heirs, everything's yours too. So don't worry about all that stuff. Don't like, like get lost in it, but don't worry about me or them or, you know, what have you. Don't get lost in those things, in the things of this world. This is what... This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. So he's saying, listen, I belong to Jesus, I'm a servant of Jesus, and I don't care what you think of me. You can look down on me. I don't care. You know why? Because your opinion means nothing. Why? Because your opinion, or the Corinthians' opinion, I'm not talking about you guys, sorry, I don't mean to point a finger. Um, the Corinthians' opinion does not change the fact that Paul is adopted in Christ. It doesn't change the fact that he's a new creation, that he is a child of God, that he is made brand new, and he's on a path, a difficult one to say the least, but he's on a path. And those things are true because of who God is. And so nothing anybody thinks changes it. And in fact, he goes on and he says... For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Or excuse me, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring um, to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one of us will receive his commendation from God. So here's where it gets interesting again. It was interesting the whole time, actually, but here's where I have underlined again. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If, you then, if then you receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, that's the important part. I'm going to unpack this really fast. So he's, this church is being nuts. And what he's saying is, he's saying, listen, guys, it doesn't matter what you think. And actually, he also says, it doesn't matter what I think. Because I can think I'm a bird. That make me a bird. I can think I am fit and buff and sing like, I don't know who sings well. Like I have an auto-tuner. Uh, yeah, like a bird. Um, it doesn't make those things true. What is true about me, regardless of anybody's belief, is what is true about me. And Paul says, if God has judged me, and he judges me innocent by Christ, if I am a servant by Christ, if the whole world is mine through Christ, then nobody's opinion matters. The only thing that matters is the truth of me in Christ. And he says, don't become puffed up. This word is so badly translated. It should be bloated. Do you ever eat way too much and get gassy. Like I started this in college where I would eat just 
awful food and drink too much beer and and I would get like I'd go to bed and I'd be burping and my stomach hurt and my throat hurt and I would be gassy and miserable all night fortunately I'm no longer gassy now that I'm old um, but what's going <laughs> the image here is a body part that is inflated painfully the word that's translated puffed up is um, is it, it implies this and believers become this we can become so puffed up look at how awesome I am I'm better than everyone else around me, right? Like the Pharisee in Jesus' story, like, uh, thank God that I am not like other men, especially that guy over there. Paul says, instead of being puffed up, I need to look at myself in harmony with who I am in Christ. I can't become boasting. I can't boast. I can't brag. I can't become puffed up because I got what I got from God. What um, we are getting from David in this text is, look, I know I don't deserve anything. I know I am brought low. I know I have failed. I, and he's not deflated, right? Like, so he's not puffed up, but he's not deflated. What does that mean? Um, you ever pop a balloon? Right? Like, it's the opposite of inflated. You know, especially when you blow a balloon all the way up and eventually it pops. I think that happens to me and my pride a lot, where I become so puffed up in myself and then everything is let out. And then I turn around and I beat myself up forever. And so it's not humility. It's like you know, anti-humility. You know, it's not arrogance. It's, it's oh, I'm awful, I'm awful. I can't believe I did this. I can't, you know, and you do this. But that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about this idea that we need to step away from this old person and become somebody new in Christ and forget the past, forget, like, all of that stuff and be who we are in Christ. Um, how does that fit with our text? Um, it fits with our text like this. Uh, I think I might cut that slide, actually. Actually, no, I won't. Um, David is saying, listen, I've screwed up, but create these things in me. Make me brand new. And then David talks about this idea of going out and being on display, right? If I were to buy a classic car and find the energy and application and overcome my attention deficit and rebuild it, I would drive it everywhere. You know, you see these guys who have like an old Model T that's souped up and has the fire on the sides and all that, that'd be awesome. Like, I wouldn't hide that in my garage. I'd show it to people. Um, If I was gifted that, I would show it to people and I would be grateful. Um, The other day, it was our anniversary, Jess and I, and uh, years ago on our, I want to say our, I don't know what anniversary it was, Dwayne Beerwagon loaned us his uh, 1969 Mustang, 1964 Mustang. 65 Mustang, and we drove around in it. I was really grateful. My wife let me drive it once. You all have seen this car, right? It was beautiful, cherry red and just beautiful. It was in my car, but I was proud to drive it. I wasn't going to hide it. I washed it before I brought it home to take Jess out on our date. Like, she even bat an eye, I swear to you. Anyway, in Christ, I am a new creation. And I'm constantly becoming a new creation. Like David is asking for, make me new. This is who we are in Christ. This is the truth of it. And I got a couple texts here. I'm just going to read one or two. Um, in the same way, let your, shine, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's he saying? Jesus is saying here, Listen, if you are going to do, if you're going to be in me, do good works. People will know me because they know you and it will bring God glory. Um, Because God has mercy on us, makes us new, and it brings him glory. 
Um, people a lot of times, oh, Eric, you're such a good guy. Eric, you do this. Eric, you do that. If you knew me well, you would know that none of that stuff is actually true. At the barest sense, I will do awful things. I will lie. I will steal. I will, you know, I ask my wife. She will tell you, on my own, this is who I am. God will pick me up or has picked me up and dragged me out of regular Eric and made me into something different. And so when people say, Eric, you're good at this, or Eric, I appreciate how you do this, that's not me, that's Jesus. It's not my car, it's his. I'm just driving it. And life, that pain, is a constant process of becoming that new thing, of being renovated, of having the old paint and the rust stripped off and being made new, the new engine put in, the new transmission, new wheels, everything. Like it is God making us new. And that's why in like Ephesians we're told to be imitators of God as beloved children. What does that mean? It means look at who he is, look at the picture, and say, this is who I want to be. I want to be somebody who forgives. I want to be somebody who loves. I want to be somebody who is new. Um, I'm going to skip my Spurgeon quote. Uh, or should I? No, I won't. Actually, Spurgeon says it better than I'm going to. So if I quote him, I can cut the rest of what I was going to say. A broken heart cannot keep secrets. Now all is revealed. Now its essence goes forth. Far too much of our praying and our worship is like closed up boxes. You cannot tell what is in them. But it is not so with broken hearts. When broken hearts sing, they do sing. When broken hearts groan, they do groan. Broken hearts never play at repenting or play at believing. With broken hearts, the hymn is a real hymn. The prayer is a real prayer. The hearing of sermons is earnest work, and the preaching of them is the hardest work of all. Amen. Oh, what a mercy it would be if some of you were broken to pieces. There are many flowers that will never yield their perfume till they are bruised. This is Spurgeon on this psalm, and he's saying, listen, that brokenness that he has, it is that bit. Ultimately, that brokenness is like crushing a flower, and the perfume comes out of it. The big picture comes by the brokenness. It's not instant. It's a process. Many of you got cherries, and you'll have to cut the pits out before you juice them or do whatever else with them, eat them, right? Anybody buy cherries this morning? I know Lita did, so. And I made a joke with Carly about it. Life is the pits this morning. She made that joke. I said, uh, life is a bowl of cherries, and she said, no, life is the pits. And so, uh, or something like that. She was much funnier than I was. Um, The idea being... We have to be processed from this old person into Christ. And it's not work. It's something he works in us. It's not our effort. It's his effort. And it's free. You don't have to earn it. You have to be good enough to be made new. You just follow Jesus. Be in Christ and you are made new. Last two verses here. Unless I skip some more. Did I? Holy what is wrong with me? All right. Uh, I thought I was going to... All right. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, first off, what you want from me isn't my work. It isn't my stuff. It's not my offering. It's not me showing up and getting my name checked. It is a heart that looks like David in this psalm. 
a heart that regrets distance between him and God, like a heart that is desiring and hungering to be made new. And he says, listen, if you just open my lips, put the words in me, and I'll tell folks. And so when I stand up and I talk about my crap, I don't talk about my crap so you guys can look and say, Eric's awesome. That's not it. Eric's awful. Eric serves an awesome God. And it's the same of everybody in this room that I know who serves an awesome God, but stumbles, but struggles. But that's kind of the cool thing. If we can get to the point where we are able to stand up and say, I'm broken and I, I'm, that's it, like that's all I got. But God works despite me. Then I don't have to pretend. I don't have to hide anything. That's like freedom, isn't it? Like that's why when I talk to guys who go to AA, they love being able to just sit in a room with people who will never judge them because they suck too. And they get to say things out loud that nobody else gets to say like anywhere else because nobody will judge them and they, they can just be free to be themselves. And it's freeing. Um, that's what the church is supposed to be. You know what's messed up about that? Like when people are hurting or when they're stuck in sin or when they're ashamed, the last place they want to be is here. Or at the other churches, right? The last place they want is that. But it's not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the opposite of that. In fact, that AA does that is because they were a Bible study to begin with. And when the first founder died, they stripped all the Christianity out of it. Like, but it was originally, like, all the steps are scriptural. It's like, you know, realize that you can't control your brokenness. Turn your life over to God and allow him to control you. Confess your sins. Go and make right what you've done wrong to others. I mean, it's all, like, scriptural. But the church got lost. We get lost. We think, I am good enough and God is lucky to have me, and I just need nobody to know how bad I am. And I'm going to pretend I'm good. And in reality, to become like David is the gift. It's a painful gift. It's an awful gift. But it's a gift that makes us new and better. Um, David ends his psalm here. Wow. I, I actually did most of the chapter. Uh, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and in whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. So part of what's happening here, and I close this out really quick, part of the deal is David is saying, listen, I, and earlier in the psalm he says this, we talked about last week, when I am made whole, I will teach sinners not to sin. I will teach people about who you are. I will tell them. And as he talks about Zion, meaning Israel, being made right, he's talking about how he will be a man who will stand up and talk, and he'll tell people, and he'll lead them back to God. And that's kind of on us. If God has redeemed us, that's part of our job. That's actually the 12th step, right? Like, go out and tell people. Or the 11th. Oh, crap, I can't remember. Um, And bring people to recovery. That's our job. Tell people about Jesus. You can be freed. You can be made brand new. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to anything. All of your past can be gone. White as snow, the whole nine yards. But the other half of this is, under the Davidic covenant, under the covenant God made with David, the nation is judged for David's behavior. And so when David sins, everybody gets in trouble. That's the agreement. And later, when Christ comes along, his people are judged for his holiness, which is what was agreed to under David, and then he is judged for our sin. I'll talk about it in the deep dive this week. It's a really cool thing. It's how all of the legal covenant system in the Bible works. It's a very complex and awesome like deal where like there's a legal basis for the building to the cross. 
And like, if you just know a little bit of Jewish law, like you realize God planned it all from the beginning to save me and you and, and John and, and, you know, Tice and, and all of us. Like he planned all this. It's awesome. And we can talk about it and it's awesome. Like it's something to be glorified. So how do we apply all this? Whole long song, still running long, but not nearly as long as I was last week. I thought I'd go short. I, what was I thinking? Um, first off, application. Um, knowing our sin and redemption through Christ. This is a huge deal. First um, John tells us, uh, if, and actually I have to look it up, if we say we, we are without sin, we deceive ourselves, and... No, my Lutherans are all asleep. And <laughs> the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins. Um, the truth of the matter is that, like, until we understand our brokenness and our fallenness, it's easy to judge our neighbor. It's easy to think that God didn't do much by saving me because I'm pretty good anyway. The trick is to know, to know our hearts, to know ourselves, and to recognize that we rebel and that God loves us anyway. If God loves me because I'm awesome, it's a very different thing than God loving me despite the fact that I'm awful. Um, I appreciate that about my wife. We've been married 25 years like last week. And she loved me even when I was the worst person in the world. And she still loves me even though I'm mostly awful. Um, It's a much better version of being loved. Uh, So new person, which like we're made into this new person which blossoms outward. What does that look like? It means that we praise, we thank God. We um, live our lives centered on Christ and our gratitude to him and our dependence on him to overcome. So when I struggle, I turn to him and say, God, help me. Not, I'll do this, and I'll ask God for help if I have to. Like, we learn to rely on him, and we learn to overcome foolishness in favor of wisdom. What does that mean? It means we learn to look at ourselves and say, I know the things around me, this world, these things are fun, but they're going to destroy me, and they're going to destroy my family. I remember, there. I've been married, again, a long time, and the husbands in the room will understand this. Um, There are days when I will argue with my wife. These are days gone by more and more so, but where I'll start talking and things will come out of my mouth and I'll think, Eric, you need to shut up now. And the words keep coming. And I'm like, why do I keep talking? And I don't stop. Eric, you need to shut up. And I keep talking, only I'm getting louder. Anybody do that? Is it just me? Seriously? All right, so (laughs) thank you, Lita. Um, The more I am in Christ, the more I come to understand what real wisdom is, and I overcome that old version of me. Finally, there's value in sin. This threw me for a leap, loop, loop, the first time I read it. The idea is, if I understand my sin, if I experience sin, God can work through that to teach me humility and self-forgetfulness. I don't look at myself and say, I'm awful. I look at myself and say, the version of me that, awful, that is awful is gone. I am in Christ now. I am adopted. I am made with a purpose. I can depend on him and realize the more I struggle, the more I can depend on him because the more I know I need to depend on him. Um, We can know that God is glorified through showing us mercy. And so if we pretend that we are perfect, we're stealing glory from God. Think about that a second. Literally stealing it. I don't sin. I uh, interviewed at a church once where the pastor would preach that you could become sinless and never sin again. And he preached that all the way up until the day he ran off with the secretary or the lady who was running the Sunday school. And 
we talked about it, and I'm like, guys, if you pretend, and I'm in this interview arguing with their elder board who still taught that and still said it about themselves. And I'm like, guys, if you believe that you're sinless, you're not pointing to the fact that God has forgiven you. And you can never tell anyone when you struggle. And as long as we pretend, we get stuck in that. We steal the grace that God has given us and we point it at ourselves. We point at that glory at ourselves. And it never works. Um, we can teach others. Probably the best thing that ever came out of being an alcoholic was telling people about Jesus and how he dragged me out of that mess and helping people overcome it. Like, it's amazing. And God uses that brokenness in my life. He uses the fights I've had in my marriage. He's used the times I've been depressed or where I've, I've you know, whatever. He uses that brokenness. And as I lean into Christ, he takes those things and he uses them in awesome ways. And it's awesome. It's fantastic. But it requires that I walk with him. Finally, I can become the merciful servant. You know the story, right? Last bit. I'm not very merciful because I'm still talking. But a king forgives a servant a debt of like a billion dollars because it was his student loans or something. (laughs) So some people are awake. I... I'm so happy you're here, Stephanie. Like, <laughs> you are like the one who always laughs at my jokes. I so appreciate it. Um, like a billion dollars forgiven. And on it, he's so thankful, you know, instead of throwing him into debtor prison, like the guy forgives him because he's like, yeah, he ain't ever paying me back. And on the way out, he runs into a guy who knows him. He's like, where's my five dollars? Give me my five dollars. And he punches him and beats him up and has him thrown in jail for the five dollars. And ultimately, the king throws the first guy in jail, says, wait a minute, I showed you this much mercy. Why can't you show others? Um, When I realize how much I'm forgiven, I can forgive others even more. It's the depth of understanding that nobody owes me anything. Because I owe God more than anybody can possibly owe me. And forgiveness is the key in that. It is spiritual growth. It is health. It is new life. Um, I'm going to close in prayer. I know I, uh, and we will not do another psalm next week, so I don't go... 40 some odd minutes. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this week. Pray that you would draw out the brokenness in us and use it to bring you glory. Use it to teach us humility. Use us to realize and to know that Christ died for us, that our value is rooted completely in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I said I'd go short.